This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. How's it going, Kate? It's going well. Good to see you again for yet another Buried Bones episode. Yeah, you've been keeping me on my toes, so I'm looking forward to what you bring up today. Well, we keep going deeper and deeper in history, which I love. You know, in the 1700s, I'm very comfortable. In the 1800s, I'm just beginning to fall in love more and more with it. And I have written this audiobook that is only an audiobook. There's no printed version. Oh. There's no hardback book. There's no book tour in that way. It is an audiobook. And I'll tell you, it's so funny because I, I get pitches all the time from people talking about their families. And sometimes they'll fit in a category where like, this would be a really great book for me, or this would be a great tenfold, or I'll, now this is a good buried bones or wicked words. But there's been one story that hasn't fit into any of these places. And so I talked to my publisher and I said, I really want to do this as an audiobook only. And she said, okay, let's do it. It's called The Ghost Club. Okay. It's out now. And The Ghost Club is nonfiction and it's kind of a mashup of two or three really great types of stories. One is about this men's social club that Charles Dickens was one of the members of in the 1800s. And they would go and eat French food, all of these exclusive men in London. They'd go and eat French food at restaurants and they would have secret conversations about the paranormal and ghosts. Oh. And Dickens was a huge skeptic, and they would test mediums who they felt like were ripping off people. And this club has been in existence now from, you know, the 1860s until today. It's still here. I've gone to the meetings. And the evolution of this club was really great. There's so many good ghost stories that I tell that were told by the members. And then there's this like electrifying president of the ghost club, the chairman named Harry Price, who was the world's most well-known ghost hunter. And his job was to go and investigate all of these ghost stories to defraud them or to verify them. And he goes to the most haunted house in all of England called the Borley Rectory, where 
There have been ghost sightings for hundreds of years, and he investigates it. And it is like full of high drama, and it's a real story. And I love telling it, and I want to know, do you get spooked easily? Should I send you a link to the Ghost Club, or is this not your jam and you should be listening to Calm or something else? <laughs> you know, I, I don't get spooked uh, easily at all, and, and I've never run across a situation where I go, huh, you know, was that a paranormal event? It sounds like this Harry Price was the historic Ghostbuster. He was. He was. And he was very charming. And he was a conjurer. He was a magician. And so people didn't trust him at all. But he was so well known. He made so much money writing these incredible books. But he also was, the big question for me was, is this guy a fraud? Or did he really, really investigate and then conclude that a place like the Borley Rectory was really haunted? And it frankly scares the crap out of me, the whole thing. Oh, the whole thing, to read these colonels and these authors and these, like, all these military men and these politicians and these members of the royal family talk about, like, gremlins and mysterious headless horsemen. I mean, it's it was wild to read this archive. I've never had an experience like that before. Well, you know, I was just, you were bringing up Charles Dickens. And when uh, we were out there in CrimeCon UK last year, I went and ate at a pub down by Westminster and uh, it, there's a sign in this pub saying this was a regular hangout for Charles Dickens. Yep. And I'm just wondering, was this where he was meeting with his, uh, you know, cronies to do the ghost talks? They were a big fan of international cuisine. They did not want British food, but it absolutely could have been. Dickens was a skeptic. You know, I mean, one of my favorite books is A Christmas Carol, where they start out with Marley is dead, and now Ebenezer's getting ready to see his ghost appear. And Dickens was a, a big skeptic. He really was. But I think he wanted to believe, which is why he was so important to this iteration of the Ghost Club. They were trying to debunk all of these people who were ripping off grieving families. That's really what it was. They were ripping off grieving families, and it was very, very upsetting. And Dickens and people like Harry Price really wanted to clear the air of all of these really bad people who were claiming to be mediums and reserve the space for people who, who truly were by the end of the Ghost Club, for me, I was trying to really figure out how I felt, but also where we land with all of this today. One of the stories is there is a little girl who is begging her dad, who's in England, please don't go on this trip to America. I don't want you to do it. Please don't go. And he says, why? And she says, because I think you're going to die. And he says, no, I'm not. And this is told by a Ghost Club member. He's like, no, I'm not. Don't worry, honey. And he kisses her goodbye, gets on the Titanic. Oh, wow. Premonition. Little kids were known to have premonitions, they claim. I mean, depends on what you believe in. But really creepy, like a, a colonel of the British Army leaving the room when he was a boy, his bedroom when he was a boy, and coming back and just blood splashed all over his drawing table. He checked every wall, every room. It was just the cat was there who was still alive, and that was it. And to have these important people recall stories like that, you just keep thinking, was everybody delusional? Or did this really happen to all of them? And, th and that's what I try to disentangle, which was a big challenge for me. I don't often get to write really, really fun things, but this was fun. I'm sure it's going to be a great listen. Okay, well, we'll see if I can spook you. I'm going to send it to you. And we'll see. <laughs> Challenge accepted. The little creepy kid predicting the, the Titanic and a colonel talking about blood dripping down a drawing table doesn't freak you out. I don't know what will, though, of course, Paul. <laughs> so, Paul, this case is so big that we need to make this a two-parter. There's some forensics. There's lots of debate. And there's still 
a big question mark about what actually happened in this case. So just get ready to dig in for a two-parter. Okay, I'll get my popcorn ready. This is where we're at. This is a really incredible story for me because it's many firsts. And I love superlatives. I love a good, this is the first of its kind. And this was the first documented trial by court clerks. It's not as technical as a stenographer, but someone who was summarizing the proceedings, which was important for the public record, and it was important for us when we were doing this research. It's also one of the first legal cases in the United States where the trial actually lasted longer than one day. Oh, geez. And and I can tell you, that spells not good news for defendants, in case you were No, (laughs) not at all. Not at all. Wow. Especially in a place like New York, if you were from another country, it was presumed that you were guilty from the start. So this is an interesting story because it involves some of our founding fathers and very controversial. Okay, 1799 going into 1800s in Manhattan. Back then, it was very bustling, of course, and you're picturing horses and carriages. You're picturing lots of sanitation issues, but also some very wealthy people. We're talking about Soho, the Soho district of Manhattan. I love Soho. I think it's a great area, and it's kind of known for its artists. But then in 1799, it was a meadow called Lisbonid's Meadow, and there's a well called the Manhattan Well that becomes very important to the story. The well holds water that's mostly used for firefighting and for the lighting industry at this time in the late 1700s. So one of our main characters is a woman whose name is Julie Elma, and we're just, thank goodness, going to call her Elma, so don't keep butchering her name. Elma lives just a few blocks from this meadow, which means she lives not far from this well. And for the past few years, she stayed at a boarding house on Greenwich Street that's owned by two Quakers, Elias and Catherine Ring. And Elma is related to Catherine, and Catherine's sister also lives there as a woman named Hope. There's a lot of names happening, but they distinguish themselves in just a little bit. So we've got six people living in this boarding house at the time. It's well-regarded. It is not a place of ill repute. And, you know, it's mostly middle class. And boarding houses were very, very common. I do have a slight pop quiz for you. There were boarders and there were lodgers. What do you think the difference is between a boarder and a lodger? Well, if I were to guess, I'm thinking if you're a boarder, you're expected to perform some sort of function in the boarding house to just kind of maintain it versus a lodger is is you're paying to stay there. The main difference between a boarder and a lodger is a boarder takes meals there and the lodger basically sleeps there. Oh, okay. So I don't know if that's the difference between a hotel now or in a bed and breakfast, but it doesn't really matter because there are six people staying in this boarding house at the same time. So when we're talking about uh, December of 1799, the country's slightly traumatized because they've just lost George Washington He had served two terms as the nation's first president, and now his vice president is in the driver's seat, John Adams. And George Washington died very recently. I think it was December 14th of 1799. So that's where we are in history. But kind of drilling down to our main characters, Elma, who is the 22-year-old, has confided in her friend, Hope, who's at the boarding house also, that she's going to elope with a carpenter named Levi Weeks. And Levi is another boarder in this house. 
Elma wants Hope to keep this a secret, which is kind of a tall order. This is pretty good gossip. And the issue already straight away with Levi is that he has actually pursued other women in the house, including Hope. Pursuing women in the 1700s would have been tricky because they wouldn't have been able to have sex beforehand, before being married. And if they did, she would be left with a blemish and she might not get married anymore. It was certainly, dating was a lot more complicated in the 1700s than it is now. So already, I'm not sure I like Levi because he's dating multiple women or he's trying to date multiple women in the same house. What do you think? Well, when you say he's dating, is this just like courting? So he was courting Hope and and she just kind of spurned him and and then now he's on to Elma? I think he's moved on to Elma or he's courted both of them at the same time and sort of went with whoever said yes. And it looks like Elma is the one who said yes. But it doesn't seem like there are any bad feelings anywhere. Levi is kind of a carpenter, construction worker type guy. But he has family in high places, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Most people assume that Levi and Elma are serious boyfriend and girlfriend. They don't really talk about it, especially Levi. Levi doesn't really want to talk about it. He hasn't disclosed that they're going to get more serious or get married. He's just sort of living his life. Elma tells Hope that the wedding is set for December 22nd. You know, Elma was in really high spirits. She seemed really excited. She loved Levi. And Hope decides she wants to tell her sister, Catherine, who is the woman who runs the whole boarding house, about this. So it's a big secret. She says to Catherine, they're going to elope on December 22nd. This is a big deal. And finally, Catherine goes to Elma and says, what I don't understand is why Levi is keeping this a secret. Elma says, you know what? I don't really know. He just doesn't want to talk about it in any way. And Catherine says, whatever, this is your relationship, whatever you want to do. And she helps Elma get dressed that night, which is her wedding night, December 22nd. She gets her outfit, her hat, her shawl, her handkerchief, and there's a muff that she borrowed from a um, neighbor. Do you know what a muff looks like? No, in fact, I was just about to ask, what is a muff? This is a muff. Let's see what the woman's oh. wearing to keep you warm, December, New York. Okay, yeah. Now, that's not attached to her dress. That's just something that she would stick her hands into, right? Yeah, yeah. And you see she's wearing gloves already, but they're thin gloves. Women wouldn't have worn big, thick wool gloves. They would have worn dainty women's, you know, nighttime gloves, and then they would have used a muff just to appear a little bit more delicate. Now, is this something that was common? Like, she's going to her wedding, right? Yeah. So, so a muff is like almost a decorative, yep. even though it's functional to keep the hands warm, but it was viewed as being decorative too. Yeah, and it looks like it could, I'm sure it ranged from whatever the animals were available then. It could have been everything from squirrel all the way up to mink, depending on what class you were. But yeah, this was very, very common. And of course, being hatted, formally hatted, having a hat would have been very common too. So she, you know, she's going to her wedding. She's not talking to anybody about where this wedding's happening. Nobody's invited. They're literally eloping and that's it. Elma is dressed And Catherine goes downstairs and hangs out with her husband, Elias. And some of the other boarders are downstairs, including Levi. So there's a stairwell in a separate area. So Catherine doesn't actually see anything, but she hears this. So Elma comes down the stairs and 
Levi gets up from his seat. He goes away from the sitting room and he goes in the hallway where the stairwell is. And Catherine can overhear these two people having a conversation at the foot of the stairs. She hears this door open, which is very loud. It's a broken door. And it's it's something that you, that she would have picked up on very quickly. She hears people leave. She has not, as a witness, seen a conversation between the two of them. I'm not suggesting death happened. It did not happen at this time. But just the the conversation between the two of them, it appeared that Elma and Levi had a discussion. He probably said, are you ready to go get married? And she probably said yes. Okay. And they left. And that was it. And that was the last time that Catherine saw Elma alive. I think you said this, but... Levi and Elma, they're, where they're going to get married is unknown to everybody. They're keeping it a secret. And Levi's not acknowledging this really to anybody. It's almost as if it's a figment of Elma's imagination a little bit. Levi is not acknowledging it. And nobody's really pressing him on it at this point. Okay. So already this is shrouded in mystery. We have snow outside. It's very, very cold. It's late December. I know December 22nd, we're approaching Christmas. Christmas was not even remotely a big deal in the late 1700s in America. It didn't really become a big deal until kind of the early 1800s, and then it gained popularity. So when you hear things that sound like Christmas, and oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening, Christmas was not an, an unusual day for court proceedings to happen either. Now, the the tradition back then for two people to get married, was it... You know, like it is today, where generally the families, you know, would be participants and it would be somewhat of a big deal for both sides. And these these two people are choosing to elope with no family members in attendance, as far as you know, no friends in attendance. Mm-hmm. Correct. And And is this an unusual circumstance for back then or is this a normal thing? It would have been a normal thing for mid to lower classes to elope, just like it is today. I mean, you know, not that people of upper classes today or then couldn't elope, but it would have been a much more, a bigger production even then than it could be now. So weddings were a really big deal, but I don't think anyone was particularly shocked that you have two relatively young people in their early 20s who decide to go off and elope. To save some money, I mean, remember, they're in a boarding house. Weddings cost a lot of money. But then things start to get a little tricky once we find out a little bit about Levi's family. Again, this is a big mystery. This is still sort of a case that's up in the air. So uh, around 8 o'clock, Catherine hears the front door, which is broken, open and shut. This is what she assumes is Levi and Elma leaving together to go get married. She tries to look through the window, but it's too dark. It's very, very dark at this point. That night around 10 o'clock, she hears the door again. So this is two hours later and she sees Levi coming into the boarding house and he's by himself and he's very agitated. So this is already not looking good for Levi or frankly for Elma. No, that's not looking good at all, you know, unless Alma, you know, ended up getting cold feet and told him to take a hike, right? Right. As we get deeper into the story, it becomes a little bit more confusing. Catherine says, where is Elma? Because it's 10 o'clock at night. It's not appropriate for a young woman to be out unescorted by a man. It just wouldn't have been a good idea in 1799 New York, even though they're in a kind of what seems to be a rural area. And Levi says, she's still out. I'm surprised she would go out that late also, totally by herself. But Catherine did not sound the alarm because Elma would spend the night with friends. Not men, but friends. So we've talked about this over and over again, where you don't have cell phones and text messages. And of course, in their case, there's no landlines. There's nothing. 
you're kind of hoping for the best and you're looking at someone's past patterns and saying, well, Elma's gone and spent the night before. That's not unusual. We're not going to panic, right? Right. You know, and that's, that's again, where victimology is something that you have to pay attention to. As an investigator, I'd be paying attention to what is her normal pattern. But it's also something that Levi, most certainly, if he's involved in foul play against Elma, could take advantage of in terms of delaying the friends from suspecting that anything was wrong at that point. And this is his wedding night. So you would think she would, right? I mean, I like your quizzical looks are always funny to me. I mean, obviously, you know, at this point, things have gone awry from what would be expected, you know? So now, you know, red flags are going off surrounding Levi and what happened to Elma. Right, big time red flags. So Catherine is the queen of red flags because she runs over to Levi and says, what happened? I thought you were going to elope. And by that morning... When she had not shown up, Elma had not shown up by that morning, Catherine was then panicked because she said there's no way she would come right back after spending the night at someone's house. And she confronts Levi and she says, did you get married last night? And he turned pale. He trembled. He seemed, again, agitated. He started to cry and he cried out, I'm ruined, I'm ruined. Okay. Now, what do you think about that? Because you probably are going to ask for more context because there is more context. But already, this is a man who's panicking and his wife is not, supposed wife is not there. Yeah, you know, when I go back to Levi being so secretive about this relationship, mm-hmm. you know, was there anything, whether because of who Elma is or was, or maybe, I mean, is it possible she was pregnant, you know, which I guess back then would have been a big deal for both of them. Yep. That could be negative. Or did something happen while they were out, which now he is recognizing he is under suspicion. And if he is caught for doing something bad to Elma, that is going to impact his future. You know, so I'm kind of looking at it from multiple vantage points at this point. Now, let me tell you, because this is probably not going to shock anyone, Elma ends up dead. Did that shock you? I was was expecting that. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I want you to know that heading into this statement, because he does say something that I think is really interesting, and it's the tense of a word that he uses. After he says, I'm ruined, and he's crying and upset, he says, I'm undone forever unless she appears to clear me My existence will only be a burden. I had rather die in credit than live under it. He is in financial despair, and he's using the present tense of unless she clears me. Does that mean anything when they use present tense and we're thinking they could be a killer? You know, it can be. Whether a person is talking about a, let's say it's a miss, we don't know what happened to the victim. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking to a suspect and the, the suspect is continuously using past tense, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that an interviewer is going to pay attention to because that subconsciously, that suspect may be expressing knowledge. They know that that victim is not going to reappear. Mm -hmm. But it's not concrete. You know, I will, when I talk about people, sometimes I will confuse my tenses. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. spoken language is not proper language by Mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination. But it's something that has to be paid attention to. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting as this unfolds because it sounded to me like he was saying, I'm ruined, not because he did anything to her, but because... 
his financial situation was so bad that she should not marry him. Now, he is not saying anything else. He's not giving any more details, except when Catherine says, but you were engaged. You were engaged to Elma. And he says, no, I wasn't. I wouldn't have tried to marry her without getting my brother's permission. His brother? Right. The brother is a man named Ezra Weeks, and he was very, very wealthy. And I imagine he helped support Levi. Ezra Weeks was the architect on Gracie's Mansion, which is the mayor's mansion in New York. He was incredibly well-respected. He designed the federal courthouse, I believe, which is a huge deal. And I think what Levi was saying was, listen, I would have had to have talked to my brother about this because I think Ezra was like a father figure to him. I think he wanted to clear it with a family member. Catherine says, listen, Elma told me that you talked to Ezra about this engagement, as a matter of fact, and he cleared it for you. So already we've got a distraught Levi We've got a woman who hasn't come home in 12 hours or, or more. And you've got Levi who's agitated over money, he claims. Okay. Um, but he's caught in this lie where he says, I wasn't engaged to her. And Catherine says, Elma was very clear that you were engaged. Now, let me say something that's uncomfortable. So what would happen sometimes is that men would get engaged to women. Men would become engaged to women so they could have sex. No, (laughs) I I couldn't imagine that happening. Because, uh, don't be a smart ass, because it was... Because it was justified. You could say, okay, you know, you weren't allowed to have sex before. A woman was tainted if she did, especially in the 18th century. It would be very difficult for her, unless she were widowed, to, you know, explain why she had sex before marriage. Any sort of, quote unquote, proper woman. It sounds like this is a situation where, and I've read and has been in my books many times, where the men promise the women, I will marry you. They have sex because they're engaged, and then the man leaves. Mm -hmm. There is actually a lawsuit that you can file called the Hartbaum lawsuit against men who do that to get monetary compensation for taking my virginity and not giving me a marriage in exchange because now I can't get married. So now you're going to have to pay me in a court of law, which I've written about several people who have been slapped with those sorts of lawsuits. Well, it it most certainly is a form of deception, uh, you know, by the man. And considering not only the reputation of the woman, but the financial devastation, Mm -hmm. I, I can absolutely see the legal justification back then for such a lawsuit. I'm kind of curious with with Elma. Did she have any financial assets or would she have just been relying upon Levi for, you know, having the money to be able to live? And of course you know, Levi's source of money is Ezra. Right. It doesn't seem like Elma had much of an income at all. Okay. And because they're in a boarding situation, I think Levi earned his money by working on Ezra's buildings as a kind of construction worker carpenter is the impression I've gotten. Sure. So I don't think that Ezra was funding some lavish lifestyle, but I do think he was helping his brother out. And I don't get the impression that Elma worked in any way, or if she did, she must have to have gotten some money. Maybe it was sort of assistant work, secretarial work. I don't know. There were pretty limited options, but it's a middle-class boarding house, which meant she was not a servant. She had to have been something a little bit more. She had family who was taking care of her, but it seems clear that this would have been a traditional marriage where Levi would have supported both of them. 
And now in assessing Levi and, and maybe his motivations for causing harm to Elma, this is where, from my perspective, hope becomes very interesting. He previously had courted her. Mm-hmm. Did he pressure her to get engaged, to have sex, you know, this would be something in terms of trying to establish a pattern of behavior for Levi. With Elma, maybe things got so far down a path where he recognized, well, my lifestyle is going to be cramped. I'm going to have to be sharing my money with this woman who I don't love. I just wanted to have sex with. It's going to be cutting my assets in half, so to speak. And it's going to be cramping my playboy lifestyle. Could be. <laughs> Playboy lifestyle. <laughs> what would that have been like in 1799? Playboy lifestyle. <laughs> I also wonder if it were that they left, she started talking about their life after they got married. And they started talking about finances and he started to freak out because his first reaction when seeing Catherine and being confronted, where's Elma? His first reaction is to say, I'm ruined. I don't have any money. And, you know, she shouldn't have married me. And maybe they got into a fight. I don't know. We're going to get to the discovery, which is a difficult discovery to make. But their motives are up in the air. And just another thought is... Let's say, you know, under this time frame, and and Levi had gotten engaged with Elma with the intent to have sex and then was going to break it off. His source of income is Ezra. Could Elma have threatened, I will not just sue you. Yeah. But Ezra, your brother, who's your financial resource, is also going to be sued. Yeah, absolutely. And those heart bomb lawsuits were even in the late 1700s, so I wouldn't be surprised if she, you're right, threatened him. And boy, that would have been so detrimental to the Weeks family in general. Things for Levi, from my point of view, are not looking great, but things for Elma are really not looking well after this. December 24th, which is Christmas Eve, there are a couple of boys playing in that meadow that we talked about, which is very close to the boarding house. They go to the well, the Manhattan well, which I told you was used with firefighters, and the lighting company in various places, a big well, they discover a woman's muff floating in the nearby well. And it was the one that Elma wore that she borrowed from the neighbor two nights before. So we've got a muff in a well. But no nobody is floating with the muff. Nobody. Nobody in the well. So that same day, Catherine is talking to Levi and has a really awkward interaction with him Because she says to him, your fiance has been missing for two days. What do you think happened? He said, Mrs. Ring, who was Catherine, Mrs. Ring, it's my firm belief that she's now in eternity. It certainly is. Therefore, make yourself easy for your mourning will never bring her back. (laughs) He's saying she's dead. And and stop whining about it because I, I think she's gone into eternity. So this just seems damning to me, but we haven't found a body yet. So Elma could be in Connecticut. We don't know. No, but it is an incriminating statement. You know, now, obviously, it's very indirect and very flowery the way he's saying it. Mm-hmm. But in essence, he's going, she's dead. So he's professing that he he knows what happened last night at this point. He's just not providing details. 
He says, it's my firm belief, which is, this is what I think happened. Now, let me tell you what he thinks is going on. He says that he believes Elma has a drug problem, and she has also had suicidal ideations, and he has people who could say that. He knows a couple of people who have said they have had conversations with Elma where she has said, why I heard her say she wished she never had an existence. He heard her threaten if she had laudanum that she would swallow it. Laudanum is an opioid. Do you know much about that? You know, this is a, uh, the tincture of opium. It is taking opium powder and dissolving it in alcohol. This was a medicine. And it would be, you know, prescribed. Opium, of course, contains morphine and codeine and other alkaloids and would be useful for pain, be useful for coughing. You know, morphine, very good for pain, right? To this day, it's used for pain. Codeine is in prescription cough syrup. Also, opioids are constipating. So, I Hmm. mean, earlier you, you mentioned cholera. You know, diarrhea. So this tincture of opium would be something that could be used for diarrhea. But imagine how addictive this stuff would be. It's just like today. It's, it's like during the opioid crisis. This is a very potent liquid source, which somebody could get highly addicted to. But she's saying if she had laudanum, that she would swallow it. That confuses me. I don't know if she's threatening suicide here. Yeah. He's connecting it to she would take her own life using laudanum, which I guess is very easy to do, right? To overdose on it. It's very easy to overdose. And it was common to overdose back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something I was taking a look at the potency of this tincture of opium. And uh, it is highly potent. Three mm-hmm. teaspoons could potentially cause you to overdose to the point of death, depending on your tolerance, of course. But if you are a novice user, you are more likely to succumb to the effects versus if you've built up tolerance. Now, if she's addicted, she's probably built up tolerance, would need more in order to overdose. But anybody, no matter how tolerant they are with opioids, could take enough in and overdose. It Mm. it is a drug that does have a fatal level with anybody. Well, Levi is convinced that Elma is dead because she was a troubled woman who might have been addicted to an opioid. And that's what he is saying so far to Catherine. Is Catherine asking, well, what happened between you two last night? You know, when was the last time you saw her? You know, why does he think this? Well, let me tell you a little bit about people in the 18th century. Confrontation was not an impropriety. Her questioning Levi too much when he appears to be in despair thus sending him into more despair would have been improper for anyone, let alone a woman, to do. So I don't see her following up. I'm not sure she's 100% shocked. I'm not sure if she feels like, well, if Elma really is getting strung along by Levi, then maybe something happened and they got into an argument and she wandered off into the meadow and vanished, and the muff went into the the well. It doesn't seem like she did any more extensive questioning, but she was alarmed by his response, for sure. So she goes missing December 22nd. The 24th of December, two days later, is when they find the muff in the well. Then a day or two after that, 
we have a man who's near the well who just notices a one-horse sleigh track and a couple of shoe prints. And the body has not been discovered at this point. So he just makes note of them because this is not a high traffic area. Without an emergency or without a utility crew around who would use that well, he thought it was interesting that a sleigh would pull up so close to the well and then, you know, a pair of what he presumed were men's shoe prints were found near the well. So he just made a mental note of that. And again, we're pretty limited with forensics, but we know this probably has something to do with the case. I'm kind of questioning how to attribute these shoe impressions and the track to the case because they're seen several days later. Mm-hmm. Trying to draw a nexus between that evidence and the night that Elma goes missing is going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be some context in terms of, was this snow deposited on the ground prior to Elma going missing and it didn't snow since? And do these shoe impressions look like they've they've frozen? You know, now that I live in Colorado, I'm seeing how I can kind of, sort of age, you know, shoe impressions as an example. Hmm. When the snow gets compressed, it becomes more dense and actually doesn't melt as fast as just your general snow. So sometimes your your uncompressed snow will, will melt away and now you see these frozen shoe impressions hmm. as somebody's walking along. It's like, oh, okay, so that occurred during this last snow, potentially. So this is where, in in terms of assessing this witness, saying, okay, there's multiple men's shoe impressions and this one-horse sleigh track, I want to know more to say, can I put that evidence contemporaneous around this well, or is this something that occurred afterwards? Because even though this is in a high-traffic area, Mm -hmm. we know some boys find the muff, Mm -hmm. and there's also other people that are utilizing this well for a variety of different reasons. Right. Again, this was just little bits of information that eventually investigators would use. I want to show you a drawing of the area, and this is not where the well was pictured. I do have a picture of the well that I think will be very helpful for you. So rural, there's some houses in and around. It's by the water. Clearly, this would be summertime. These are kind of people out here just playing, but this is the meadow area. And so I think that's where you're right. Andrew, the man who saw the tracks, just made note that they were very close to the well and what's the point of them being that close. And then once we get kind of closer to what happens at the well, then I'll get your impression on (laughs) if if you've changed your mind about any of this. She, again, as a reminder, went missing on December 22nd. On January 2nd, 11 days later, her body is discovered inside the well and it's carefully retrieved. Now, I was confused. I don't understand why they wouldn't have found this before. Before I show you the photo, can you give me an easy explanation for if this is a fairly big well, thinking this is something that the New York Fire Department used, Right. could we see why this would be difficult in January to track down a body inside the well? There's, you know, one obvious reason that uh, stands out. You know, the, the kids find the muff floating, right? right? It's something that is detachable from her. Mm-hmm. Now, she's she's got her, I'm presuming, some sort of wedding dress on. Mm-hmm. If she goes into this well and it's cold out, the water is cold. Of course, it's going to be very cold. It's groundwater. Mm-hmm. She likely is going to sink. So she possibly is not visible 
from the surface like the muff is, but over time, it's delayed because of the cold water. But she's going to start to decompose. And as she decomposes, the bacteria inside of her, inside her gut, are producing gases. And what happens with gases? Hmm. It bloats the body and the body will now float. Okay. This is what I think is going on, absent more information, is that she sank initially and then through decomposition with the gases, she became buoyant, floated to the surface, and now she could be seen at the surface. In 1980, a man who owned a business in Soho did some renovations and he discovered the well which had been around since the 1700s. In 1980? Yeah, it has been authenticated. It's on display, and here's the well. Now, of course, you have to think a lot of it was underground, of course, at the time, but this is a fairly large well. If you look at the boxes nearby, Mm -hmm. easily it would fit several bodies, not just one body. Right, well, this, at least with what I can see, is that we are seeing the upper part of the well, Mm -hmm. right? And most of this likely was buried. I imagine Mm -hmm. maybe three feet would have been above ground and the rest would have been, you know, sort of like the retaining wall as this well was built to be able to access the uh, groundwater that is deeper. Mm-hmm. So its diameter looks like, you know, as we get from the surface, maybe four feet diameter, expanding out to five to six feet diameter. And don't know, you know, in terms of, you know, how deep the total well was. Once you get into where now it's just the ground that you're accessing and you're not putting any type of retaining structure inside this opening, you know, how deep did this well water go? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is a substantial, this isn't a small well at all. It's easy for, you know, multiple people to be able to get in and out of the the opening of this. Yeah, absolutely. It's substantial and it's on display at a clothing store in Soho if you ever want to check it out. Wow. So once they get her out of this well, there is a layperson who has observations of her literally being pulled out of the well. And then there's someone who has a little bit more specific information who is a physician, kind of. So this is the layperson. This is a guy named James Lent. This is what he said. And what I want to know is this whole time, you and I and the audience need to be thinking of, would these injuries be caused by a murder? a potential suicide or decomposition of the body because of being in the water or none of it. Okay, so this is what he says. Her hat was off, her gown torn open just above the waist, her shawl was off, her handkerchief and shoes were gone, her hair hung over her head. In lifting her up, I found her head fell forward. And when we lifted her a little bit back, her head fell back again, and again it fell to the right which caused me to suppose that her neck was broken. Does that sound right? Broken neck based on that description? No. Okay. Imagine this is 11 days later. Rigor has passed. Uh, She is going to be very loose, you know, in terms of her body. And, you know, we naturally aren't used to interacting with people who are so limp. So he could just be observing, you know, as her body shifts, you know, her head is just, rolling around on the neck because she's not putting any type of resistance to it Mm -hmm. versus he's not describing anything to a point which would indicate that it's going past normal anatomy of the neck. 
Yeah, it's interesting the details that James Lent made because he also talks about her clothing. He said she had a white petticoat on. I discovered on her right hand something like a kick. So I don't know if he's looking at a bruise or or some sort of indentation. There was the scratches of sand upon her skin, some of which was knocked off and seemed to have been drove forward. I don't know what that means. Her stockings were torn at the toes. The right foot was bare and somewhat scratched. The scratches were on the upper part of the foot as if she had been dragged to the ground. Her arms were and her legs were straight, but her neck was remarkably limber. So now back to rigor. Does that all fit for you? When bodies are in water and submerged in water. Imagine being in a dead man's float Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of floating there face down. Your uh, hands are down. Your legs are somewhat down. And as that body is is in that position, it's moving back and forth. Mm -hmm. And is it possible that it was rocky at the bottom of this well, rocky, sandy at the bottom of this well, et cetera, to where you have just the natural motion of a body somewhat suspended in a dead man's float, but at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And now you're getting these abrasions due to the body just rubbing up against the bottom. Banging around in the wind and water and, oh, yeah. What this civilian witness is seeing about Elma's body, for me right now, I'm going, I can't attribute that to any type of violence that happened on the surface. This sounds consistent with a body that's been submerged in a body of water for a period of time. Well, we'll have some physicians or more experts than James Lint were who are going to testify in a little bit. But right now, let's just say she was described as being fully clothed, but with terrible bruising across her neck and her legs and her breasts and her arms from we don't know whether or not it was a confrontation or whether it was being in the well. What we do know is that there was a coroner's inquest and the only two things they could determine was that Elma was a victim of homicide and that she was not pregnant at the time of her murder. And that's it. They couldn't determine anything else as of right now. Did they give any more details about her injuries? No, just fully bruised. We do have some people who are going to testify later, but they did not do a full examination, and I'll tell you why in a minute. This murder, once it gets out into the newspapers, of course, completely shocks New Yorkers. This is a middle-class woman who has disappeared and is now found dead in a well, which is about as gruesome as you can think. It causes a huge sensation, and again, with the superlatives, historians consider this to be the very first media circus, and every time some Somebody says that, I always find a story that was a bigger media circus that was even older. So I don't believe those anymore when people declare the first serial killers, the ones we know, I guess. But I mean. Yeah. You know, and and I do want to just, you know, back up a little bit about her injuries. You mentioned the extensive bruising like to her breasts and and other parts of her body. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is of concern for me right now. I, you know, even if let's say she falls down this well and this course is going to hit you know, the sides of the well, you know, it's how deep this well is. I mean, she's not, if if the well has any depth to it with water, it's not like she's going to hit the bottom of the well with any force. And I would not expect the extensive bruising, at least the way I'm imagining it, Mm -hmm. as you described it. I just want to put that out there as the amount of bruising is a little concerning. The, The little bit of abrasions on her hands and her feet right now, no. But the bruising may be of concern. 
huge sensation. Everybody wants to know more about Elma. And Catherine and Hope, who are at their boarding house, are sort of panicked because people are knocking on the door wanting to know more about their boarder. And they also are in mourning because they adored Elma. Levi is being weird, and they have no idea what happened to their friend. What would be very customary would be for them to open up the parlor of the house, display Elma's body, and allow people to come in and pay their respects. For my first book, Death in the Air, I I had no idea why we have rooms that are called living rooms. Do you know why they're called living rooms? Well, I've always assumed it's just because that's where, you know, you would host guests and just kind of live, right? But you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, I am going to tell you you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So the parlor slash what we would say is a sitting room, living room, used to actually be called death rooms traditionally, both in the UK and here. And it was for viewing dead family. And you would have them people come in and they could stay up until a week in the room or longer, I guess, if needed. And this is where you would have receptions. There were no funeral parlors, but at the turn of the century, people realized we could take this out of the house and start businesses. That's why funeral parlors are called funeral parlors. And in 1910, the Ladies' Home Journal, which I love, said, maybe we should no longer call these death rooms. Maybe we call them living rooms. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That is. It never dawned on me that that's what was happening back then with the deceased. Yeah. Now, I'm just imagining, let's say, like the state of Elma's body, you know, not being found, even though she's in a refrigerated environment, mm-hmm. she's not going to be in good shape no. 11 days later. And even with embalming and stuff, she's not going to look good. Yeah. She's not going to smell good. You're not going to be wanting to eat dinner while Elma is laying in rest, whatever that term is, in the death room next door. You know, that's like, mm, doesn't sit well with me. That's probably why they held it outside of the boarding house. So people could walk by, and they had thousands of people walk by to see this woman's body and to pay their respects, including, of course, a throng of media included there. Now, the public's grief starts to turn toward anger, which is pointed at Levi, who people presume is Elma's killer, and they are forming lynch mobs and ready to hang this guy. And pretty soon, Levi Weeks is charged with his fiance or girlfriend or whatever you want to call her, her murder. And as soon as he enters the courtroom, onlookers start screaming, crucify him. One thing I want to know, because this is such a big case, we're going to make this a two-parter. Based on what evidence are we arresting Levi Weeks? And this is a very complicated case. And the ending was surprising even for me. Okay, well, you've kind of got me on the edge of my seat here. (laughs) Kind of looking forward to seeing how this progresses because, you know, and from my perspective, Levi has some explaining to do. I agree. I'll get you some answers next week. Sounds good. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. 
Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, a Gilded Age story of murder and the race to decode the criminal mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.